This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Standing in front of my peers is always nerve-wracking, especially when I'm standing in front of my professors. Um, I grew up doing a little bit of martial arts, and the hardest judges were my professors, and they would like were my teachers, and they were very obvious. Even in tournaments, they would give us the lowest marks in, in competition uh, to their own students. But uh, it is a blessing. It's great to be back. Uh, Mandy and I, as you can hear my son crying in the background, uh, Mandy and I drove up here last night. We've been living in Kansas City, um, but I miss being here. I miss being here. It's having the camaraderie of men who wants to study the Word of God with you and think like you do and are just trying to grow in grace is a, is a, is a wonderful thing to have. Uh, and so it, it feels good to be back. Um, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, beginning at verse 33. Ryan, you did say this was already on, didn't you? So you could edit all of it out before you put any of it on there. <laughs> Mark chapter 9. Beginning at verse 33, our text of study this morning is Mark 9, 33 through 37. Before we get into our passage of study this morning, I would like to take a little bit of time and thank my professors for spending some time and effort on me over my MDiv program. Even you, Dr. Dunham, I got to be present for your uh, Rice Lecture series and was able to read some of his articles, uh, of which I've greatly benefited probably most uh, more so than any other uh, journal I've read is our journal here I've benefited the most from. So I'm, I'm thankful to you guys for your service and ministry. Uh, it is rare, I think, to find professors that are pushing students in the academic world to be uh, faithful students, uh, consistent students, and simultaneously demand closeness with the Lord. Uh, I think it is probably even more rare from personal experience to have professors that don't mind their students walking into their office just to talk and chat. Uh, I've recently been able to take uh, some other classes at uh, different places, and I found that a lot, of, a lot of professors give you this aura like you're wasting their time if you're not in class with them. But um, I've spent a lot of time in, in, uh, in a professor's office just talking. Um, and I've been blessed because of that. As a matter of fact, thinking of rigor uh, uh, before or after my first semester of seminary here, a pastor on the East Coast had called me and he invited me to teach at his Christian school uh, in the Bible, uh, the high school and uh, junior high Bible. And I graciously and thankfully, I thanked him for asking me. And then I turned him down because I was committed to the MDiv program here. And uh, him being an MDiv and THM graduate here, he goes, how has your first semester been? And I said, it is more work than I could ever possibly imagine one man could accomplish. But man, am I thankful for being put through the grind. So thank you. Thank you for that. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 33. Uh, recently, there was a, a world-famous entertainment wrestler who's become popular on YouTube for saying this, quote, you are talking to the Rolex-wearing, diamond-ring-wearing, kiss-stealing, wheeling-dealing, limousine-riding, jet-flying man, and I am having a hard time holding these alligators down, end quote. Of course, I'm not wearing alligator boots, 
nor will I ever be able to say that with the same kind of panache Ric Flair did. But I think that Ric Flair actually well summarized what most people in this world determine to be the deciding factor in an individual's greatness. Does a person have wealth, power, and or possessions? Now, such an approach to greatness does not work for the more philosophically minded unbeliever, though. So for many unbelievers, greatness is not wrapped up in wealth, power, and possessions. Greatness is wrapped up in accomplishments. The author Byron Reese identifies effecting social change as the mark of true greatness. He points to people like Rosa Parks and Mahatma Gandhi, Norman Borlaug, who is actually credited with saving over a billion lives, along with many other people as great people, because these individuals did things to effect social change in big ways. Reese even throws Jesus into the mix of great people while completely overlooking anything Jesus himself had to say about greatness. But Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37, is the first of two times Jesus instructs the disciples on the topic of greatness in Mark's gospel. Verse 33 tells us that Jesus' instruction to the twelve takes place in the privacy of a home. The text is not explicit as to whose home they are in. We do know that there is at least one person who is not a member of the twelve who is present, that person being the child Jesus takes into his arms. But nonetheless, the instruction here seems to be private instruction to the disciples. We also find in verse 33 why Jesus even brought up the topic of greatness. It says, while he was in the house, he was asking them, what were you discussing on the way? Jesus noticed that the disciples were having a dispute, an argument, uh, while he was leading the way to Capernaum from the mountain where the transfiguration recently took place. He'd also just healed a demon-possessed boy. And so Jesus makes a particular point about greatness using three elements to define greatness in response to the disciples' answer to his question, what were you discussing, or their lack thereof, because they didn't answer him. The first element for defining greatness is found in verse 34. But they kept silent, for they were arguing with one another on the way who was the greatest. Greatness is not defined by temporal realities. This is the first element of Jesus' point here. Greatness is not defined by temporal realities. The dispute among the disciples is actually kind of ironic, right? Because Jesus is going to end the chapter with a command to be at peace with one another, but the disciples here towards the front end of the chapter are, uh, or halfway into the chapter, are arguing with one another. Who is the greatest? It is also ironic because not too long before that, the disciples had already proven themselves to not really be that great. They were incapable of healing a demon-possessed boy. We may imagine, actually, that Peter, James, and John could have provoked this argument. You know, Jesus told them to not tell anyone about the transfiguration, but they could start an argument about who is the greatest. Obviously, they were set apart from the other 12 to, um, to be their own group amongst the group, and so might have given them a little bit of pride, arrogance, so they might have started a discussion on the issue of greatness. But no matter the reason for the argument, Jesus' question <coughs> is answered with complete silence. The text tells us that 
The disciples kept silent, for they were arguing over who was the greatest. But the text does not tell us why the disciples thought that their argument was inappropriate, at least inappropriate enough to uh, not answer the Savior's question. It could have been that the disciples were momentarily convicted, that they were more occupied with their own greatness than the Savior's up-and-coming sufferings, right? This is the second passion prediction, and the disciples completely forget about it. They're talking about their own greatness. But such a conviction is completely absent from the other two passion predictions, so there's no reason to think that this is where their minds are. It may have been that the disciples were afraid of receiving a similar rebuke that Peter received back in chapter 8. Either way, the disciples continue in their silence, kind of condemning themselves. They don't give it an, an explanation. We know from Jesus' criticisms of the scribes in Mark 12 that defining your greatness by temporal realities such as wealth and public recognition was as much of a problem in the first century A.D. as it is today. Jesus says in verses 38 through 40 of Mark 12, Beware of the scribes who like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. So we're not surprised that the disciples struggled with this wrong view of greatness. And it is their silence in response to Jesus' question that highlights their problem. Such a wrong view of greatness is actually going to become more magnified in chapter 10 when, uh, when Jesus encounters James and John. They're asking Jesus explicitly for positions of greatness in the kingdom. You know, about two weeks ago, I was having a... <clears throat> Every once in a while, I stop into my pastor's office and just have a time of discussion and prayer with him. He really enjoys it. He's been in the ministry almost 50 years now. Um, and so we were having some discussion before he went away to teach junior high science. And he began to relate to me a time in his life as a young pastor in Los Angeles, California, where he began actually to grow weary of even wanting to go home at night. You see... Uh, Dr. Anderson had been, uh, uh, at this stage in life, had been ministering a lot of hours in areas of counseling and evangelism, one-on-one ministry uh, in his church. He, he was pastoring a church on the east side of Los Angeles, and he would come home late at night. At the same time, his wife was at home with the kids. She spent all day with the children. They were young at the time, and so she looked to her husband's arrival as an opportunity to kind of get a break from the constant clamor of children. But the reason Dr. Anderson grew weary of going home at night was simply because his definition of greatness was based on temporal realities. His idea of, of a great evening consisted of coming home to dinner and chilling out on the couch. It did not consist of running errands or completing miscellaneous tasks until 11 and 12 o'clock at night. And so when his ideas of greatness did not materialize, he became angry and frustrated with even his own home. True greatness starts with understanding what true greatness is not. Greatness is not defined by temporal realities. Chuck Swindoll puts it like this, quote, Thinking right always precedes right acting. And when our definition, end quote, when our definition about greatness are, is wrong, our actions are going to follow. 
our actions will also be wrong. That is why we must always correct our thinking about greatness. Wrong thinking about greatness was the disciples' problem. It was Nature Boy Ric Flair's problem. It is Byron Reese's problem, and it is our problem. We must rewire our minds to first know what greatness is not. Greatness is not defined by temporal realities. The second element in defining greatness is found in verse 35. After sitting down, he summoned the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be great or desires to be first, he will be last of all and servant of all. Greatness is defined by service. We're kind of taking a step up here, right? We figured out what greatness is not. Now we're moving ahead and defining greatness, figuring out what it is, at least broadly. This is Jesus' second point, or this is the elements to Jesus' point. Greatness is defined by service. Unlike the rebuke Peter encountered after Jesus' first passion prediction in 8, 31-33, Jesus does not rebuke the disciples for uh, refusing to answer his question. Instead, he takes the typical posture of uh, a Bible teacher of the day, and he sits down. Then he begins to correct their wrong thinking about greatness. Greatness for Jesus means being last of all and servant of all. This word last is used figuratively here in the sense of having the least honorable position. The future tense, he will be last of all, expresses the idea that such is expected if one desires to be truly great in the eyes of God. Such a person will therefore act voluntarily. In other words, if one desires true greatness, he will take it upon himself to serve amongst his own peers, in his own orbit, even in the least desirable position. Servant here is, a distinct, is distinct from other words used for servant in that it carries the idea of personal service. The disciple of Jesus who desires to be great is to willingly and unselfishly commit himself to serving all people. And I think here in the text, at least in verse 35, that word all indicates just all people in general which we will get to in verses 36 and 37. Many of us already know that uh, the mid-19th century American evangelicalism was kind of, uh, at least in our minds, was kind of known for a lot of social uh, interactions. Churches were highly involved in providing social goods, usually and hopefully to provide an audience for the gospel. So you have organizations that were founded like the Salvation Army and YMCA, YWCA. Uh, I was reading the other day in a biography about J. Gresham Machen. He actually worked for the uh, YMCA at the fronts in the fronts of World War I. He didn't, he didn't believe ministers should carry guns or engage themselves in fighting. And he wanted to help out, so he served hot cocoa to soldiers being shot at. Um, uh, Sunday schools became a popular mechanism for reaching the uneducated with the gospel. So American evangelical churches were serving all people inside and outside of the family of God. And even in our day, we actually see uh, similar ministries offering social goods to create an audience for the gospel. Uh, you think of uh, women's crisis pregnancy centers, that kind of service, that kind of ministry. You think of drug rehabilitation ministries and college ministries, all kinds of various ministries, services that the church offers and Christians offer to people. I think one area of service that local churches today are actually really missing out on 
is the area of counseling. Just a good, solid, well-organized counseling ministry in local churches. Some of you know that I, uh, I've driven Uber for a year and a half, almost two years. Uh, I've had a few rides. did it full time. And after spending a good amount of time with almost over 4,000 people, I've discovered something about a lot of adults. They're very frustrated at life because they cannot figure out why they cannot make sense out of life. And after conversing with them, it's surprising because they would actually jump at the opportunity, or it seems like they would jump at the opportunity, to sit down with someone they were confident that would actually open up the Word of God and make sense out of life with them. Show them what's going on in their life. Show them how to correctly think. Show them the gospel. One of the best compliments I have ever received in my life was a man who claimed to be an atheist. I think by the end of the uh, car ride to the airport, uh, he at least became an agnostic. Um, <coughs> so that's not much progress now. Um, man, I was uh, I actually in, in, in the conversation. I uh, midway through the conversation, I said. What college did you graduate from? Because, man, you were smart. And he goes, Princeton. I was like, oh, okay, what would you major in? He goes, philosophy. I was like, okay. But one of the best compliments I ever received is he said, you know, you make Christianity sound very real. It doesn't sound overly mystical or kind of hogwash. It sounds, you, you really bring the Bible to light. I said, well, an unreasonable Christianity is not much Christianity at all. And he goes, yes, that completely makes sense. But it's surprising how many people would love a strong counseling service to the lost and the unsaved. And what we also have to realize is that would be a service to both those outside of the family of God and inside of the family of God. Because in counseling other people, we also get the opportunity to show other people how to counsel and open up the scriptures to the lost and dying world. The third element for doing uh, for defining greatness is found in verses 36 and 37. And taking a small child, he set him in their midst, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives a child like this one in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but the one who sent me, him who sent me. Service to God's people characterizes true greatness. This is the third element to Jesus' point. Service to God's people characterizes true greatness. We've taken our third step up, kind of the pinnacle. Once again, there is a bit of irony here because in chapter 10, verse 13, we find the disciples rebuking people for bringing children to Jesus. But here in this private setting, Jesus sets a child in their midst and then takes a child into his arms. We already know that ancient pagan cultures generally did not have uh, much um, high value for young children, little children, and women. Boys were generally looked at as some kind of physical commodity because they strengthened the state and the family. Both in Old and New Testaments, people were just prized for being image bearers of God. And we can already clearly see here that Jesus values people from the most recognized in society down to those who are the lowest on the social totem pole of the ancient world, such as children. The question we must ask, though, is who does children represent? Some people think that Jesus is strictly speaking of welcoming children. We, I think, will readily acknowledge that Jesus is speaking about welcoming children, but some have argued 
that Jesus is only speaking about welcoming children. Others have proposed that Jesus is speaking of those who are socially insignificant in society. But the problem with both of these arguments is basically um, it would mean that serving any human being at any given point in time would make that person doing the service a follower of Christ, or at least receiving Christ. But that clearly doesn't work in the light of Scripture. We don't even have to leave the book of Mark. We could just go to the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler is a man we know who um, was well-to-do, and he, generally speaking, followed all the laws. He, on the outward at least, had obeyed the commandments, which means most people would have recognized him as someone who served other people. He loved his neighbor as himself, right? Or so he thought. But we find at the end of the rich young ruler, the only time in the Gospel of Mark where you see Jesus love, it says explicitly that Jesus loves somebody. The rich young ruler walks away from Jesus, rejecting his offer of eternal life. He doesn't receive Christ. So the first two ideas don't work. The third interpretation is that the child represents believers. And the strength of this interpretation is that it accounts for the phrase, in my name, right? Jesus qualifies it with that prepositional phrase, in my name. So the verb to receive is not for salvation, but receiving is due to, it's, it's because the person you are receiving, you were receiving because he or she is in the name of Christ. So the verb receive then would be parallel to the verb serve. They're interchangeable. If you are receiving somebody, you are, reser- you are serving them. If you are serving somebody, you are receiving that person as well. This is the same idea that's actually con- uh, con- uh, communicated in verse 41. It says there in chapter 9, verse 41, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly, I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Jesus' illustration then teaches us that true greatness is not wrapped up in serving even the lowest people on the social totem pole. Jesus' illustration teaches us that true greatness is wrapped up in serving God's people. Greatness is defined by serving God's people. That is what Jesus is communicating here in this text. It's his main idea. Greatness is defined by serving God's people. If children were those who were looked down upon as the least important in the social world, in the ancient world, then I'm willing to bet that the socially awkward and the uh, elderly have probably taken their place in our world. I I think we can all identify and uh, acknowledge that pretty much every church has that guy in the church that's just weird to talk to, you know? And if you talk to him, he just thinks... You're the coolest guy in the world, and he wants to talk to you every time he sees you. And just, uh, you know, the second he goes to you, um, you're in a sense his best friend, right? He comes from a family that uh, is probably not the most stable family. He consistently goes to church. He's most likely the only person in his family that regularly goes to church. <clears throat> There's a man in my, in my church I go to right now that I'm thinking of, and he lives right across the street. And he's the only person in that family who regularly attends. But he shows up every time. Right? Now the problem is, is if we give such a person like that our time, maybe some good advice, and just spend a short amount of time talking to him, we'll probably be late to something because nobody talks to him. So he's just going to talk your ear off. But what's surprising is just by lending a, a, 
an open ear or spending some time in God's word, giving him godly advice maybe about work or getting a driver's license or random things of life. It's amazing to see how encouraging that is to another believer. It's amazing to see what giving up our time does. Or maybe we can decide to visit church shut-ins. That might be something we dip our toes into, try it out. And I think that uh, all of us who are not pastors would be greatly benefited by showing up to a shut-in's house once a week just to spend some time with another believer in conversation, the Word of God, and prayer. I think that our pastors would be greatly encouraged to know that there are other adults in the church who care about the elderly. I think we would be encouraged. I think the elderly would be encouraged to know that there are other people in the church who care about them besides the guys who are, in a sense, paid to visit them. Right? They might be happy to see somebody else other than the pastor. No offense to pastors. There was, um, in the reading Dr. Doran gave us for church administration, uh, ministry management, uh, the, last, the author's last name is Welch, there was an illustration. He became the uh, administrator of a church, a large church. And uh, while he was there, he noticed that the secretary was on the phone two and three hours every morning, five days a week. And he just thought, man, that is a waste of company, company time. I mean, just yammer in on the phone. So he began to inquire, and he found out that because of the church's size, the church actually had a significant amount of shut-ins who were regularly being revisited by the pastor. But throughout the week, they just didn't see people. They needed some human social interaction, and they knew that the church secretary would at least listen to them. So they rang her every morning just to talk and have fellowship. Maybe we take our service a little bit further and decide to cut time out of our week, precious time out of our week, and we ha- hold a Bible study or go on a double date with some couple that doesn't, doesn't attend our church or doesn't come to our Sunday school class. Our, my Sunday school class has begun to practice this itself. Or maybe we just decide to invest extra time into students or young men or families. I think of John MacArthur giving an illustration from his personal life. He had a professor... Charles Feinberg, who would uh, give him a new book every week. John MacArthur would read the book, come back, give him the book. Professor Feinberg would give him another book. Did, did this with him for three years, nonstop. And now John MacArthur's ministry has benefited from it. Men, we live in a world that is horribly reclusive. People pride themselves on doing it on their own, being by themselves, serving themselves. But we're called here to serve other people, even the lowest of people, the most embarrassing kind of people. Unfortunately, I think Christians have gravitated towards that secular, that worldly mindset of self-serving, being by themselves. But that doesn't work here, does it? Right? Greatness is defined by serving God's people. So what do we do? We start leading by example. We start teaching by example, committing ourselves to serving those who are lowest on the social totem pole, the socially awkward or the shut-in. And I pray that is our goal. Greatness is defined by serving God's people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I ask you that in any unclarity I had in communicating your word, you would not let your word go void but you would prick all of our hearts to take these passages seriously. 
In a sense, I'm preaching to the choir. But Lord God, I ask you that we would be more fervent in our in our goal to serve you by serving others, both inside and outside of the family of God. Bless us in our studies throughout the rest of the day. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Inner City Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.